Well read, Annette. It brought the, the passage alive for us. I appreciate that. Let's just pray before we uh, dive in, shall we? Our Father God, we, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the power of your word to convict us, to challenge us, to teach us, to show us your ways and your purposes in this world. And we pray that today, Lord, we may listen and receive your message for our hearts. We pray that your Holy Spirit will act upon each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Glenn prayed, and thank you very much, Glenn, for the prayer. That was very good. Sort of took half my sermon away, but that's fine. <laughs> for the last few weeks of this term, we've been looking at... Uh, God's mission in the Old Testament. It's been fascinating to see how God's purposes um, began right in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And uh, his purpose, his plan for the world really hasn't changed. People may have changed, circumstances may have changed, but God's purposes have never changed. Adam and Eve were told something. One of the things that they had to do was go into the earth, multiply they were told to fill the earth and subdue it. They were to rule over the earth as God's agents on this earth. And that command given to Adam and Eve was reiterated after the time of Noah. Flood wiped out the earth and Noah and his family survived. Noah was also told to go into all the world. And basically as a representative of God, as his agent. And then we saw that the people... Yeah, they had other ideas. The people that uh, uh, from Noah's time, they gathered together in a place called Babel. They built a city. They built a tower. And God judged them. And part of the thing that was, they were doing was they keeping it all to themselves. So God confused the language and dispersed them throughout the world. Again, they were meant to take the message of God to the world. That was Babel. Then in Genesis 12, we met Abraham. I'm using Stuart's timeline here, so I think hope this all works. <laughs> I'm not giving, taking any credit for this at all. Stuart's done a wonderful job. Abraham. Abraham was given some promises. God would make him into a great nation. He'd make him famous. And he would be blessed to be a blessing. To who? The whole world, the nations of the, the earth. This was God's command. This is God's covenant instruction to Abraham. He was blessed, but he had to be a blessing in turn. We then move through the period of the patriarchs. God reiterated that covenant promise to the patriarchs. They had a purpose. They had a mission in this world. We then moved on to the um, spending 400 years in Egypt. And at the end of that time, people, we found the people of Israel in slavery. God rose up Moses, who led the people out of Egypt to become a nation in their own right. God was working again. We saw it in the 40 years in the Exodus, in the um, wandering in the desert, that God formed the people into a nation. This is important because they needed to become a community with laws and rules that would govern their relationships. They were um, honed and refined, built up. 
that was strengthened as an army ready to take on, take over the land of Canaan, the promised land of Canaan. And we see as they, let's see if this works, beautiful, as they begin to invade the land of Canaan, we had the episode of Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho. What's happening, what was happening here? God is still on mission. The Israelites were meant to share with the world that there was one true God, not a God that was worshipped, or gods that were worshipped in um, stone and metal and things that people have made with their hands. The story there about Rahab was Rahab was a Canaanite and she believed in the one true God and her, through her faith she, was, she and her family were saved. God was still at work. And then we had the story of the judges in the period of the judges. We, we found Ruth, a Moabite, a non-Jew, again coming to faith. And the significance of these two ladies was that they both were forebears of Jesus. They were in Jesus' family line. As much as they were um, forebears of David and his son Solomon. God was still on mission here in the nation of Israel as it reached its pinnacle of power and influence. They were a nation to be um, uh, recognised, to be dealt with, but to be a witness to the world. In Solomon's time, we see the Queen of Sheba coming to visit Solomon because she'd heard of his wisdom, the wisdom that he'd received from God. Sadly, the period of the kings was rather tragic. And uh, just before the end of that period, around about 750 BC, we had this story last week of a guy called Jonah. Someone listened. Awesome. Jonah was commanded by God. He was a prophet in the northern part of Israel. And he was told to go to the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of the uh, growing kingdom empire of Assyria. And Jonah was told to go and preach to the people of Nineveh, a non-Jewish people. Again, we see people repented and uh, the city was not judged at that point. And um, the whole, whole city of Nineveh became believers in the one true God, much to Noah, uh, Jonah's disgust in some ways. However, about 50 years after that time, the Assyrians invaded the northern tribes of Israel and captured them and deported most of them, dispersed them, and only left the southern tribe of Judah, And which is where we're going to land today because the next stage in Israel's history was the Babylonian conquest. After the Assyrians came the Babylonians. The Babylonians conquered uh, Jerusalem in about 586 BC. They destroyed the temple, this magnificent structure that Solomon had built was totally and utterly destroyed. And uh, they deported the leaders, the uh, skilled workers, and took them to, to Babylon, where they were to be assimilated into the Babylonian way of doing things, assimilated into the Babylonian culture. It's interesting, they were giving, given limited freedom in Babylon, and the Jews tended to congregate in ghettos or enclaves, um, basically maintaining a lot of their sense of identity. But they, and they were able to 
trade and, and earn a living, but they were not allowed to return to their home or native lands. So where are we? David and Saul, that's the exile. I missed one, sorry. So the people were living in exile at this stage in Babylon. Where's Babylon? Well, there's a map. Uh, Modern-day Iraq. And if you remember, Babylon was the new name of Babel. Babylon and Babel are synonymous. Babel had risen again in the form of the mighty city of Babylon. So we see as part of this assimilation process that some of the Israelites are from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And they were to learn the language and the literature, read culture, of the Babylonians. And after three years of this training, they were to enter into the king's service. Now, among those chosen, as we heard in uh, Daniel, read for us from Daniel 1, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And in order to assimilate these guys and further remove their Jewish identity, they were given Babylonian names. So Daniel became Belteshazzar, Hananiah becomes Shadrach, Mishael becomes Meshach, and Azariah becomes Abednego however you'd like to pronounce his name. And they would be trained in this world of the Babylonians, which is one of priests and magicians and astrologers and philosophers. And this world included some of the best literature in the ancient world. This literature included uh, books about omens and incantations, prayers, hymns and myths, legends... But it also had, contained information um, about the sciences, the sciences. And it describes skills such as glassmaking, mathematics and astrology. Daniel and his friends were to study this literature and they were to become masters of it. As part of their training, they were also rewarded by being assigned a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Now, this was good stuff. This was top-quality stuff. It was served to the king. It was the finest wine that money could buy. However, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. An interesting step. And he took the very bold step and requested the official in charge to feed him only Vegetables. Looks pretty good. Vegetables and water, not the king's food and wine. But the official in charge of, the, of their training, he was a little worried because if the king found out that he'd not been looking after them properly, not feeding them properly, then he'd be he'd lose his head, he'd be executed. But God is there again. He causes the official to look favourably upon David. Uh, Daniel. Said no. Daniel. We're in Daniel, Jeff. And he agreed, to, he agreed to Daniel's proposal to feed Daniel and his three companions only vegetable and water for 10 days. And after that, to compare their health and well-being with the health and well-being of the other young men in the training program. And what do you know? We read that after 10 days, 
Daniel and his companions looked healthier and better nourished than the rest of the young men who ate the king's food. And so the official decided to feed the lot of them only vegetables and water after that. I really feel sorry for the other guys in this program. <laughs> I, I, I respect Daniel's decision. That was very brave to stand up and uh, take this step. But for the others who weren't so committed, they lost out big time, didn't they? But hopefully their health and well-being improved as well. But just let's pause for a moment. What was wrong with the, the royal food and drink? It wasn't that it may have been offered to idols, as uh, was a problem in the New Testament times, but it would appear from other passages that those who shared food from the king's table actually entered into a, a covenant relationship with him. By eating his food, they committed themselves to a friendship and an obligation, and they accepted that they had this obligation to be loyal to the king. It's like saying that there's no such thing as a free lunch. You've heard that expression? In other words, if someone buys you a meal, then there could be an obligation in the track to repay the favour at some time. It was that kind of arrangement. And Daniel realised that if he accepted the food and wine from the king's table, he would be obliged or bound to serve the king with loyalty and commitment. The food and wine would defile him in the sense that it challenged his freedom to be God's person. And so God honoured Daniel and his companions and their commitment to him. And it says in verse 17 in chapter 1 that these four young men, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And then at the end of their three years, of training, they were found to have no equal. And so they entered the king's service. And as verse 20 notes, let's put that up. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. This is Nebuchadnezzar quizzing or interviewing the young men who are lined up to enter into his service. Now, the point is not so much that Daniel and his friends were intellectually superior, but the source of their intellectual superiority and their practical wisdom was, in fact, God. And the writer here is stressing that the gods of the Babylonians who supplied wisdom to the Babylonians were no match for the God of Israel. And so, consequently, Daniel and his companions rose to places of Incredible influence in this foreign land to which they had been taken. God was still on mission. And Daniel didn't back down or retreat into a ghetto, an enclave of fellow Hebrews or Jews. He didn't withdraw from the society in which he found himself. Instead, he participated in it. And he could say that he had the hope that God would work through him to transform the Babylonian society. As such, Daniel is a model for us in our attitude to the world in which we live. The message here is that this is God's world. No matter who seems to be in charge, and we, who are God's people, 
God's people in this world that seems so ungodly must not let anything or anyone destroy our identity as God's people. We are to live, you and I, we are to live in this world as agents of God's to influence and shape it, shape the world. But we will not and should not be defined by this world. Daniel reminds us as Christians in today's world that because we've been bought by the blood of Jesus, we must not allow ourselves to be bought by another at any price. We must not give way. Rather, we must live for Jesus. Now we're going to jump forward to Daniel chapter 3. We find that uh, just at the end of chapter 2 that um, Daniel, sorry, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego uh, rose to positions of power in the Babylonian province, the wider Babylonian province, but Daniel remained in the royal palace. And we, chapter 3 just focuses on Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Now, at some stage in his career, King Nebuchadnezzar made an enormous statue. And this thing, we're not told what it was, what it represented, but it was an image. And it was 30 metres tall and 3 metres wide. Now, if you can imagine the tower outside here, this is 20 metres high. Add add another half of its height on top of that, and it's about 3 metres wide. That is the size of this image that Nebuchadnezzar made. And Nebuchadnezzar and his pride and defiance of the one true God decreed that whenever anyone heard the sound of musical instruments, they were to to bow down and worship this image. Failure to do so meant that they would be thrown into a fiery furnace. They would be burned, incinerated. Now this order, this decree, was of great concern to the Jews, and particularly Jews like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. To bow down before the image would be tantamount to recognising Nebuchadnezzar and his gods. So the young men refused to do so, refused to bow to the image. Now, at this stage... There was no shortage of people who harboured resentment against the Jews and noticed their conscientious objection. I sometimes wonder whether it was some of the men who had been trained with with Daniel and his companions who missed out on eating food from the king's table. But that's just a speculation. Anyway, these people reported the, the fact that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were refusing to bow down to the idol. And the king then summoned them to explain themselves. But they bravely bravely responded in verse 16. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to to deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Well, as, as we can expect, the king was rather upset about their statement. He was furious, in fact, and he ordered them to be tied up and thrown into the fur- furnace. 
And just note that they were fully clothed with all their robes, turbans, hats, the whole works. And to make a point, he ordered the strongest men, I don't know why the strongest men in the army, to actually tie them up. Make sure those bindings were good and tight. And to further, he made the point, he, he, he commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than normal. So we can imagine this blazing furnace roaring away with fire. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, tightly bound with ropes. They were bodily lifted by these strong guards. Soldiers carried them up to the lip of the furnace and tossed in. The heat was so hot that the men who carried them up there were actually killed. They were incinerated themselves. It was at this point that something amazing happened, something remarkable. As the king looked into the the entrance of the, the furnace, he saw not three but four men walking around inside the furnace. And it says the fourth looked like a son of the gods. The term son of the gods was probably just a way of something that's supernatural or something which cannot be explained was happening. Some have speculated that the other figure was Jesus or perhaps an angel sent by God. But what was understood through the presence of this son of the gods was that somehow God had miraculously rescued the three men and that he was actually present with them in the flames. King Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the furnace and called them out with the words, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And when they come out from the furnace, they found that not a single hair on their head was singed. Their clothes were totally intact. They weren't burnt, singed or anything. And they didn't even smell of smoke. Well, the upshot of all this was that Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and he made worship of him legal in the Babylonian Empire. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were then appointed to higher positions of authority in the wider province of Babylon. Now we see at the start of this chapter, this episode, Nebuchadnezzar issues a decree that actually defied God. He commanded worship of this image. But at the end of the chapter, here we have Nebuchadnezzar issuing yet another decree that acknowledged the power and the reality of the one true God and made worship of him legal in Babylon or across the whole Babylonian empire. We're never told whether Nebuchadnezzar actually uh, believed in one true God or whether he just sort of put him on our God on the shelf alongside all the other gods. But the fact that now the Babylonian empire recognised the God of Israel is how we can see that God is still on mission, reaching out to non-Hebrew, non-Jewish people across the world. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego trusted in God. They refused to obey the king's command. They yielded up their bodies rather than worship 
a false god. And this resulted in God's people being kept safe, being preserved. And it resulted in God being glorified and acknowledged by this defiant king. Now, each of these three men would have known that there would be a cost to be paid. Living for God in Babylon undoubtedly meant persecution and suffering at some time, even though they were in positions of authority and privilege. But in this incident, we see these three men stand up for what they believed. The incident and the firmness proved to them another great truth, which they undoubtedly knew in theory, that no matter what happens to the godly, no matter what happens to believers in God, God will be there with them. And they, were, they showed that they were prepared to trust God even to the point of death. Now, the point of the passage is clear. It was hard living in Babylon and believing in the one true God. Living in Babylon was living in a world opposed to God and his reality. There were two choices faced by Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in Babylon. They could compromise what they believed by turning away from God and becoming Babylonian. Or they could stay true to God and risk their lives and success. Everything around them pointed to the first alternative as the better choice. However, their knowledge of God and his reality pointed them towards the only other alternative. When they looked a bit harder at Babylon and its false religions, false beliefs, they knew that there was absolutely no choice. Anything else was not only a denial of truth and their identity, it was also great foolishness. Now, we must be careful not to misread this chapter, uh, chapter 3. God's rescue of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego is proof that he does exist and that he is able to rescue. But he did not have to come to their rescue. In some cases, he does not come to the rescue of his saints. God gives no guarantees about rescuing us from suffering. What he does do is that he gives us guarantees about where he will be when we do suffer when we go through times of hardship and pain. He will be, and he's promised to be, right there with us. And that is the point of the fourth figure in the fire. When God's people suffer for God's purpose and for God's glory, he will never, ever leave them alone. You know, it's never easy being a Christian in this world being a Christian makes us distinctive. We stand out in a crowd. And if we don't, we probably should. We're noticed as different because of our beliefs and practices. Christians stand out because we believe in God and think that others should believe too. God's mission has not changed. We are perceived to be bigoted, thinking that we alone have the right understanding of who God is and how we are to relate to him. 
Christian believers believe that other religions have nothing to do with, with reality and that Jesus is the only way to know the real God. And if that were not enough, we cling to a book that was written over 20 centuries ago, believing that it is the definitive guide for faith and conduct. Furthermore, Christian believers live life differently. We openly reject practices of those who surround us at work and in our neighbourhoods. We spend our time reading our Bibles, as Stuart mentioned before. We spend our time attending church and going out at night to study the Bible and pray with our friends. Unlike many others in today's world, Christians respect authority and obey the law and refuse to take revenge on those who are malicious towards us. Cheating in exams or using illegal means to avoid paying tax is considered inappropriate. Christian believers do not believe in lying to the boss and do believe in the importance of keeping their word. Trust is important to us. Christians are not afraid of acknowledging and confessing any shortcomings or wrongdoing openly and publicly. And we do not think that we are the centre of the universe or that the aim of life is pleasure and its pursuit. We don't follow commonly accepted patterns of sexual behaviour or get tied up with the excesses of our friends in other areas. On all accounts, Christian believers are odd people, somehow out of place in the modern world. They are people that threaten this world by our beliefs and our practices and who, by their words and actions, call the world and the people in it to stop rebelling and to change direction. Christian believers know why they are the way they are. They have met God, the living God, in Jesus. And in him, we have come to know reality. We know that the world is God's. He made it. He is our creator, God. And the only way to live in this world is in a relationship with our creator, God. We have found life and full meaning in Jesus. But look at the alternatives. When we look around at the world, we are confirmed in our decision to live with and for God because of the futility of the alternatives. Christians stand in stunned amazement of people who live primarily for what they can earn, bowing and scraping to their bosses in the hope of gaining advancement or prestige. We are incredulous that someone should live life at the beck and call of some transitory master, committed to ambitions, careers, possessions and their own little kingdoms at the cost of a relationship with God. Christians join with their master in his immense sorrow that people should spend their lives gaining the whole world only to lose 
their own souls. There really is no choice. As God's people, Christian believers know that there is nothing as ridiculous as man-made religion, no matter what name it goes by. We know that there really is no choice but to commit ourselves to the real God and to the reality that comes through his son, Jesus Christ. Christians know that we can no longer live as fools thinking that reality can be found in money, sex, pleasure, possessions or careers. But my last point is there is a cost to be paid for reality. You see, we also realise that choosing reality is costly. And we've seen it often in the lives of those who have lived for God and stood up for what they've believed who've gone before us. Moreover, we've seen it in the life of our Lord Jesus. The people of God know that commitment to God and his kingdom places them at odds with the kingdoms of this world. And like Paul, they know that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. And reality comes with the cold, hard nails of the cross. And so we cling to the words of Jesus, who said that whoever seeks to save their life shall lose it. And whoever loses their life for the sake of Jesus and the gospel will save it. We know the cost involved in being God's people is worth it. We have the sort of life that goes on forever in unequaled, unparalleled quality rather than the transitory life of our peers, the transitory life that our peers are chasing. But the cost comes with an overarching comfort. For those of us who have decided to pay the cost of following Jesus, God promises to be with us no matter what, no matter in what circumstance we find ourselves. He says he will remain firm and committed to us as we remain firm and committed to him. He will be with us in our times of deepest need. And what is more, the time will come when he will show up all the futility and foolishness of this world. He'll show all that up for what it is and reality and truth will triumph. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we stand in direct line with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, with Daniel, with Jesus, with Stephen, with Paul and countless others down through the ages who have chosen to follow God. And as we stand in line, we must realise that at some time in our lives, their stand will become our stand and their words, our words. For some of us, it will be in the office, the workplace, amongst friends. And here the cost may be our reputation, friendships, promotions, jobs, livelihood. For some believers, the cost has been or will be made in the face of persecutors with instruments of death and torture. And we only have to read of some of the events in countries like Egypt in recent days when people have been executed for standing up for Jesus. Reality comes with a price. 
no matter which it is for us. Should God call upon us to suffer for being his, he will stand with us as he did with each of these people. He will walk with us in the midst of the fire as he did with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And make no mistake, God is still on mission. He still wants to reach the lost in this world. He wants to see new life come to every home in this community, to the growing southwest and beyond. God is still on mission. Things have not changed. And he has called us to have a purpose in that mission, in that outreach. We are to stand firm and true for him in the face of whatever circumstances bring our way. But as we do, he will honour us, he will be with us, and we pray that lives, communities, nations will change. May we pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you are our Lord and our God. We thank you that you've called us to know your reality, to know your love, and to understand that faith in you brings hope and peace, joy. But Lord, we pray that you'll give us strength to endure, strength to prevail, and strength to stand in the face of a hostile world. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.